I heard a story once about a man who had been shipwrecked on a desert, deserted island for several years when he was finally rescued. His rescuers, after getting him some fresh clothes, some food and water, started inquiring about how he had survived all alone for all of those years. And they noticed that there were two huts. And so pointing at the first hut, they said, what was that hut used for? He said, well, that was where I went to church. And pointing at the second hut, they said, well, what about that one? He goes, well, that's where I used to go to church. Church conflict is nothing new. Countless jokes have been made about churches splitting over trivial matters like the choice in the carpet or the youth painting their room any color but white or off-white. And those jokes are funny only because they're true. I remember when I was in high school, we youth had our own room in the church and we painted it bright royal blue and we signed our names in Sharpie on one of the walls. Yeah, and it caused quite a bit of stir as I hear the groaning out in the congregation. I recently read the, the results of a Twitter survey describing various church conflicts. Among the results of that survey were things like an argument in the church, a very serious argument in the church over who had authority to buy church stamps. A major issue when the youth borrowed a crock pot that hadn't been used for several years. And perhaps my favorite one, members leaving the church because another church member had hidden the vacuum cleaner from them. <laughs> if the church is the family of God, then we are good at fighting with each other like family sometimes. If we are the children of God, then sometimes we fight with each other like children. We have been arguing and debating with each other since the Holy Spirit first descended on Pentecost. Paul, who here in Ephesians urges the community to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Paul was no stranger to church conflicts. First and Second Corinthians, letters in the New Testament, are Paul's letter to a community that is rife and filled with conflict, that is splitting over almost every conceivable issue. I mentioned last week the letter to the Galatians, where there is a serious Conflict, one that is threatening the very integrity of the gospel, Jews and Gentiles living together in community. And Paul writes to them Paul urges unity. Lead a life that is worthy of your calling, he says. And what is our calling? We've been discussing it over the last couple of weeks to be Easter people, people who see the world not simply as it is, but as it could and should be. People who live with a sense of hope and possibility. People who are participating in the grand story of God's redemption and recreation that is unfolding all around us. And people, as we saw last week, who are committed to tearing down those walls of division and seeking that new humanity in Christ. And that calling, Paul says, is lived out in unity. Make every effort, Paul says, to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Do this by bearing with one another in love Live with humility and patience. It strikes me that Paul's word about unity is much needed and much longed for these days. In our ever more divided and fragmented society, we long for some sense of unity, some sense of togetherness. Unity is both a healing balm to the woundedness and the fracturedness of our existence, and it's also a challenge to us. How do we find unity? How do we arrive at that place of unity? And there are three aspects of unity that I want to look at this morning. 
The first is that unity is peaceable difference. Unity is peaceable difference. Unity is not sameness. Jews and Gentiles living together in one community did not mean that they lost the particularities of those ethnic categories. Paul was incessant throughout his letters, throughout his entire ministry, that Gentiles did not have to become Jews, and on the flip side of that, that Jews did not have to become Gentiles. Those those ethnic differences were not unimportant. They were just not barriers to belonging together in community. Each group in its particularity was welcomed, and they had a place to belong. The same is is true in our own time. The church sort of stands out as a unique place in the sort of communities that we would exist in. That we live in a society that is increasingly marked by silos and echo chambers, where we exist in places where most of uh, the people we surround ourselves with already agree with us, and they confirm what we already think. It's almost as if every side of every issue has become more and more entrenched. And the church can exist as a different sort of place. Where else can we go where we can gather together with people from such diverse socioeconomic backgrounds, generations, and life experiences? These differences are not erased within the church, but they strengthen the community and its life together. Unity was also not the elimination of each member's uniqueness and individuality, because beyond those larger overarching categories of Jew and Gentile, there were the each individual that belonged to the community. And each one of them was welcomed as they were. Their particular gifts strengthened and united the community. Their diversity came together in unity. That Paul lays it out here through a variety of gifts that each person can offer. Some are are preachers, some are healers, some are pastors. Others were elders and deacons. They were men and women. They were elderly and young. Some could play music and sing beautifully. Some are are really good at construction and maintaining the physical structure of the building. Some are really good administrators. Some have an eye towards mission and justice and how to make the world a better place around the church. Others are really committed to growing their own inner spiritual lives and are able to lead others in their own journey. Some are really good at writing budgets and maintaining the church finances. Some are technologically savvy and they know how to, write, to create and run live streams and how to connect via Zoom during a global pandemic. Some are, are filled with compassion and they have this ability to sit with people in the most difficult of life circumstances without judgment. Unity is all of that difference, all of that uniqueness, all of that difference being stitched and woven together. There's a great little documentary that I saw a couple years ago called The Biggest Little Farm. And it's told in the first person from the perspective of the couple who owns Apricot Lane Farm just an hour north of Los Angeles. Molly was a chef and a culinary blogger, and it was her dream to someday own a farm that would provide all the food she needed for her cooking and her blogging. And so the sort of farm that they imagined for themselves was kind of out of a children's storybook. You know, one where the, the, the cows and the pigs and the sheep are all friends with each other. Their vision was a biodiverse farm that worked in harmony with nature. The problem is, is the land that they bought was in a very different sort of setting. A very different kind of farming existed all around them. The industrial, agro-business, monoculture farming that is all too commonplace these days. 
To the north was the ruins of what was once the largest indoor egg operation in the world. To the west was miles and miles of raspberries covered in plastic. The farm that they had bought only had grown lemons and avocados. And so their dream of this biodiverse farm working in concert with nature would stand in stark contrast to what existed around them. The soil, after all of those years of monoculture farming, was dead and used up. And so in order to create the biodiverse farm of their dreams, the first thing they needed to do was to bring that soil back. And that meant getting rid of things that should never have been planted there in the first place. It meant learning that nothing was wasted. Everything was useful from the the worms to the animal waste to the tiny microbes that moved unseen in the earth. Where most farms only grew one thing, corn or soy or cattle, they farmed over 200 different things on this farm. They had 75 different kinds of fruit trees alone in their orchard. Nature would eventually balance everything out and turn all of that diversity into simplicity. But it was not without its challenges. At one point, birds ate 70% of the ripest fruit from their orchard. Snails ravaged plant crops and coyotes would kill the chickens. So natural solutions to those problems were taken, like having ducks eat 90,000 snails to control the infestation. But that solution led to a whole other problem because now duck waste created toxic algae in the water supply. John, the husband, at one point said, every step we take to try and improve our land is creating the perfect habitat for the next pest. And what they learned was that everything had a place. Even the coyotes, who were often viewed as predators and shot by most farmers, had a role in controlling the gopher infestation that was killing the trees. What they learned is that everything has a place. And what they created was that biodiverse farm of their dreams that really does look like something out of a children's storybook. That is unity. That is all of that difference coming together and working together. Everything has a place and a role, even the pests. Sameness is boring. Sameness doesn't nourish the soil. The the creator God who made the world around us, all the things that we see and don't see, isn't interested in creating a community of same people, but people who are united in their diversity and their difference. We are stitched together into a beautiful and wonderful community. Unity asks each of us the question, what is mine to offer? What is the unique thing that I bring to the community that perhaps no one else can bring? That's the first aspect of unity, living in peaceable difference. Second, unity is found as we engage in the things that matter. As we engage in the things that matter. It would be easy for us to think that unity is simply the absence of conflict, that unity is us sitting locked arm in arm around a campfire singing Kumbaya. Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from a Birmingham jail called that a sort of negative peace, a peace that is simply the absence of tension. Not all church arguments and not all church conflicts are over things like the color of the carpet or who has the authority to buy church stamps. If those are the things that we're going to argue about, then we're going to have to learn how to compromise. But Paul, I think, is much less concerned about those sorts of things. He's concerned about conversations that are at the very heart of the gospel, the very heart of what it means to live out the message of Jesus in our own time. Things like, can Jews and Gentiles exist together in the same community? Things like, can women be ordained? 
Or are we going to be welcoming and inclusive of LGBTQ individuals? Or as we discussed last week, are we going to be engaged in that work of racial justice and reconciliation? These sorts of conversations provide a positive sort of tension to the community. These are things that can help define who we are and who we seek to be. And they might cause conflict along the way, but they are productive in shaping our identity together. And we've seen this sort of productive tension here at Greenfield when it came to being welcoming and inclusive of LGBTQ individuals. That this church stood as a source of productive tension, stood at the forefront of creating tension and challenging the church to become more welcoming and inclusive. Challenging the church to live more fully in that manner that is worthy of its calling. And it created an identity that united us together. That we are a progressive congregation that is welcoming and inclusive of everybody, no matter who they are or who they love. And we know that there's a difference between welcome and inclusive, don't we? That welcome says, you can be here, but inclusion says, you belong. Welcome says, the doors are open, but inclusion says, you have a place in shaping who we are as a community. We need that sort of productive tension. Because if we are Easter people who see the world not simply as it is, but as it could be, then we are going to need to be engaged in those conversations and those activities about the things that matter most. Third, unity is found in love. Paul implores us to love here in this passage. Bear with one another in love, he says. If unity is this stitching together of diversity and difference, if it's this ability to engage with the things that matter the most, those things that might be divisive, then we are certainly going to need love. We need a love that is born out of patience and humility to maintain that bond of unity. Inevitably, we are going to be gathered together with people who we might not agree with in every conceivable way, We are going to be here with someone who might be entrenched on another side of a position from us. Beyond all of that, too, with all of the difference in personalities that are here, we also might be side by side with people who might just rub us the wrong way, people who we don't necessarily mesh well with. There are times where we might not like each other. Feelings will get hurt. We will not always get our way, and sometimes we'll have to compromise. Sometimes we might have to go along with something we disagree with. But what holds us together is love. Love that exists in the community is so much more than just sappy and warm, fuzzy feelings for each other. If that's the the sort of love we think is going to hold us together, then I think we're going to be sorely disappointed with the results. The love that holds us together is a love that not only forgives, but a love that's willing to accept forgiveness. It's a love that enables us to live with grace towards one another, to accept each other, not just for the good things we offer, but also for those growing edges, for the times where we are not our best selves. It's love that that helps us to bear the pain of others when they are hurting, because when one is hurting, we are all hurting. It's love that allows us to listen, not to respond so we can get our point across, but so that we can genuinely seek to understand. Love is born out of humility that says, maybe I don't have all the right answers. Maybe I can learn something from somebody else. Love draws us all together in a common mission and purpose. And there is no unity without that bond of love. 
Live in a manner that is consistent with your calling, Paul says. Live in a way that reflects who you are and who you seek to be. Live as Easter people, hope-filled people, people who live with a sense of possibility. And as I've said several times already today, people who see the world not as it is, but as it could and should be. And this is a beautiful and wonderful calling. It's the most important calling of our lives, I think. But it's also not something we can do alone. We need each other. And because we need each other, we will need that gift of unity, that unity that is marked by peaceable difference, by engaging in those things that matter most, and by being bonded together in love. And as we live together in unity, we actually become a small little example of the world as it could and should be, the world that we as Easter people seek to build. Thanks be to God. Amen.